The Gospel according to John. It's one of the earliest accounts of Jesus' life, and we learn at the end of the book that it comes from one of Jesus' closest followers called the disciple whom Jesus loved. Now, he appears many times in the story itself, and there's some debate about whether it's John the son of Zebedee, one of the twelve, or a different John who lived in Jerusalem and was known in the later church as John the Elder. Whichever John it was, the book embodies his eyewitness testimony, and it's been brilliantly designed with a clear purpose that he states near the end. John says, the story is written so that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah and that by believing you may have life in his name. John believes that the Jesus you read about in this book is alive and real and that he can change your life forever. The book's design is really cool. Its first half opens with an introductory poem and a short story that's followed by then a big block of stories about Jesus performing miraculous signs that generate increasing controversy. And it all culminates in his greatest sign, the raising of Lazarus, which creates the greatest controversy as Israel's leaders decide to kill Jesus. And that launches into the book's second half. These chapters focus on Jesus' final night and last words to his disciples, which are followed by his arrest, trial, death, and resurrection. The book concludes with an epilogue. In this video, we're just going to focus on the first half. So the book opens with a two-part introduction. First, a poem that begins, in the beginning, was the Word, an obvious allusion to Genesis 1, when God created everything with his Word. Now, a person's words, they're distinct from that person, but they're also the embodiment of that person's mind and will. And so John says that God's Word was with God, that is distinct. And yet the word was God, that is divine. And as we ponder this claim, we hear later in the poem that this divine word became human in Jesus. Then John goes on to draw from the stories of Exodus, saying that Jesus was God's tabernacle in our midst. The glorious divine presence that hovered over the Ark of the Covenant became a human in Jesus. Which leads to his last claim, that the one true God of Israel consists of God the Father and the Son, who has become human to reveal the Father to us. Would you pray with me? Almighty God, pour out your Holy Spirit on me and on all of us gathered here. Lord, take my words and make them yours. Take all of our thoughts and make them yours. And take our hearts and set them on fire for you. Father, we love you. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, uh, for technical difficulty reasons, we don't have the scriptures up on the screen this morning, which means horror of horrors, you might have to open a Bible if you want to read along. Um, so we're in John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. This is the, the story of the wedding at Cana. Now, I was there just over a month ago, which was really cool, but even better, I got to renew my marriage vows in the wedding chapel in Cana uh, because our, we'll celebrate our 10th anniversary later this year. So I'm not saying that my marriage is better than yours because of it, um, <laughs> but I'm going to imply it. I didn't put the picture up because I didn't know if I had permission to put a picture of my wife on the screen. So um, I've learned that in 10 years. <laughs> so John chapter 2. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. 
Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 80 to 120 liters. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, so they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here at Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. My friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I told the first service that I was trying to keep my sermon relatively short because, you know, it's time change and, and all of our attention spans are shortened and we're half awake, um, but I lied to them, unfortunately, so I'm not going to make the same promise to you. So uh, John's gospel does not write about miracles. He writes about signs. Now, they're the same thing, just to be clear. He just names them something different because John wants to draw our attention to the meaning of the miracles. They, they point to who Jesus is and what he's doing. And specifically, they all point to the final and greatest sign, which is Jesus' death and resurrection. So this story is the first sign, and it's unique to John's gospel. The story, this story does not appear in any of the other gospels. Now, Jesus tells his mother that his hour has not yet come, and I love the way he does it, right? If I had talked to my mom like that, I wouldn't be here. Um, <laughs> now, elsewhere in John's gospel, when Jesus refers to his hour, he is referring specifically to his death, resurrection, and ascension. That's his hour. So even at this early stage, Jesus' mind is on Easter. He's looking ahead. He knows what his greater purpose is. And I have to imagine that with all that in mind, supplying wine to a wedding probably feels a little trivial to him. I think you see a little bit of Jesus' humanity coming to the fore in this story. Mom, I have bigger things to do than make wine for a bunch of drunk people at a wedding. But whatever his objection, he does it anyway, right? And it's because his mom insists, like moms do. And she has good reason, right? Since they are invited to the wedding, they know at least one of these families, right? Either the brides or the grooms, maybe both. Um, they're either friends with them. They might be related to them because if you've ever lived in small towns, you know everyone's related to everyone. Um, and not just in that town, but for the next three towns over, right? And Cana is only seven miles from Nazareth. So there's actually a good chance that these are relatives or at least lifelong close friends. They're part of their community. They know them well. Mary wants to help them out in a time of need. Running out of wine at the wedding would have been this huge, humiliating thing for the groom and his family. A wedding was a week-long 
party with new guests arriving each day. And it's not like the old guests leave every day. Just more and more people come each day. So you get a bigger and bigger party as it goes on, right? The day you come depends on usually how close you are to the family. So you've got a constantly growing party for a week. And the responsibility for providing the food and wine for everybody is only on the groom and his family. So Mary wants to spare her friends the embarrassment, and she knows that Jesus can help. And I think this is a, a clear display of faith in her son, and, and, and very clearly it's faith that he is more than, than what meets the eye. This doesn't appear to be faith in just purely human abilities, does it? I mean, she knows that he can do something that no one else could do. And there's also this wonderful faith in him as her son, who will love and respect and obey his mother, right? Like a good Jewish boy. Um, and we know this. We know this because when he objects, she doesn't argue with him anymore. <laughs> she just goes to the servant and says, do what he tells you to do, right? <laughs> Typical mom. Right? There's no more argument. Her will known, and she expects her will to be followed. Um, you can do that, apparently, with boys in a way you can't do with girls. I haven't figured that out yet, but my daughter does not respond this way. Um, she knew that she could turn to Jesus in a time of need. And she knew that once she had made the need known, she could walk away and leave it in his hands. And so you have these six stone jars, uh, all of them together it's about 120 gallons. So Jesus' first miracle is to make 120 gallons of wine, and that's my kind of miracle. <laughs> the question is, when did he make it? Now, this seems trivial, but it actually matters. When's the moment when that water turned into wine? John says the master of the banquet doesn't know where the wine comes from, only the servants who drew the water know. And the way that's phrased suggests that when the servants drew the water out of the jar and poured it into the cup, it was still, in fact, water. Somewhere between the moment when they pour it into the cup and the moment the man tastes it is when it becomes wine. So imagine that you're one of those servants and you know that the party is out of wine and that they need wine. And this woman who you don't know, and her son, who you also don't know, come up to you, and the woman says, just do whatever my boy tells you to do. And you only obey because you know somehow they're related to the groom or the bride. And he tells you to just put a bunch of water in the jars and put some water in the cup and take it to the master of the banquet. I, I think if I had been in that position, I might have objected a little bit. Sir, this is still water. <laughs> this is not going to fill the need they need filled. The obedience of the servants is actually an important part of the story. It's their obedience to what had to have seemed like a ridiculous instruction from Jesus that brings about the miracle. Now, all this is a sign that points to greater things to come. Weddings and wine are these images that are used all throughout the Old Testament to describe the messianic age to come. Anyone who was reading this when it was first written or hearing the story or even just seeing it happen in person would have picked up on this instantly. That this is 
a claim right off the bat that Jesus is the Messiah that people have been waiting for and that the best is yet to come. In fact, he's saving the best for last. We can become so wrapped up in the cares and concerns of this life that we don't just miss the bigger picture, we reject it altogether. We choose to focus all our attention and therefore all our energy, all our thoughts, all our hearts on the things of this world. And when we do that, we begin losing sight of Jesus. Or worse, remaking him in our image. One of the things that Jesus dealt with throughout his ministry in all four Gospels is the expectation that the kingdom of God is coming now, and if he's really the Messiah, he should be fixing everything now. And in fact, his insistence that that's not how this is going to work is one of the things that eventually causes people to turn against him. Everyone expected that when the Messianic king shows up, things would immediately get better. No one would have expected that actually they might get a little worse. No one expected that the Messianic king would be enthroned over a kingdom that has no physical borders. No one expected that he would allow the Roman Empire to continue. The people had been waiting for 490 years. And in fact, there is a clear and strong belief amongst the Jewish community in the first century that their exile never ended. That even though they had physically returned to Jerusalem, most Jews, and especially the Pharisees, were convinced that they were still somehow in exile because the glory of God had never returned to the temple. If you think back to when you read the Old Testament and the story of Solomon building the temple, when they finally christen it, there's this incredible moment where the trumpets sound and the glory of God descends in this incredible presence of clouds and light and thunder coming down from the heavens to rest on the temple. And before that, it does the same thing with the tabernacle in the wilderness as God is leading them through the desert. The presence leaves the temple when Jerusalem falls to the Babylonians and the temple is destroyed. And when they rebuild it, it does not come back. And so there is this strong sense amongst the Jews of Jesus' day that they are still in exile. The presence of God has not returned, and they're still waiting for that. And so they go back to all the, the Old Testament texts that they know and love, and they read chapters of the book like Daniel chapter 9 and others, and they reinterpret the 70 years of exile as 70 weeks of years. 70 times 7, 490 years. And so, right around the time that Jesus lives, 490 years have passed since they were first carried off into exile. And everyone is looking for the Messiah. Everyone is primed to believe that he's coming back any day now because it's been 490 years. They all assume he's already been born and they're just waiting to figure out which one of them it is. They're primed to believe that the Messiah is here. And their only problem is they have remade God in their own image. They are expecting a warrior king who's going to come and lead them in battle against their oppressors. They're, they're convinced that their Messiah will, of course, uphold the Torah rigidly 
and enforce the laws of the Old Testament rigidly, unflinchingly. And when Jesus doesn't do any of these things, they hate him for it. The book of Isaiah portrays the Messianic kingdom as a great wedding feast overflowing with good wine. And Jesus is making it clear at Cana that the kingdom has arrived, but it doesn't look like the people thought it would. He provides 120 gallons of the best wine any of them have ever tasted. It's this show of incredible generosity and provision, and it hints at something deeper, which is that God has saved the best for last. That tells us something important. The best is yet to come. Some of you in this room have pretty good lives. You've worked hard, you've made a good living, you've sustained your family, and you're happy. And for you, the part of the message here is that the best is yet to come. And that's encouraging, but there's also a bit of a warning in there. A warning that you shouldn't get too attached to the good things of this life because they pale in comparison to what comes next but they can easily become so firmly entrenched in your heart that they themselves become an object of worship. This is why, by the way, the Gospels are so full of warnings for the rich. It's not because rich people are inherently evil or because Jesus doesn't want you to do well for yourself. It's because he knows that there is a danger that we can become so enamored with the material pleasures of this world that we would actually choose them over him. And to be clear, any one of us could fall into that trap. We are all more wealthy than 90% of humanity. We are all the rich people Jesus is talking about. No matter how good this life may be, the best is yet to come. If you have to choose one or the other, make sure you choose Jesus. But some of you in this room do not have very good lives. Even if you have a good job and you're doing okay in in material terms, you have other problems. Maybe your family is estranged. Maybe your marriage is on the rocks. Maybe you struggle like so many of us do with anxiety or depression. Maybe you're just stressed out. Maybe you have trouble getting out of bed in the morning and facing your day. The list goes on. And for you, the message is similar. The best is yet to come. This life is not all there is. And this isn't naive optimism either. This is the promise of the God who created us. He is saving the best for last. So problems that will seem huge, overwhelming, all-consuming right now will seem trivial when that day comes. I'm willing to bet that in the moment, Running out of wine at his wedding was overwhelming and maybe even panic-inducing for the groom. This brings shame on his family. It's a big deal. It's just about the most humiliating, embarrassing thing that could happen to someone in that culture. Might have even been seen as like a bad omen for the marriage. But I would also bet But over the next couple of years, as the newlyweds begin their life together, as they settle down, and as they watch their friend Jesus changing the world as he goes about his ministry, that they saw that problem in a totally different light. 
Jesus has a way of putting things in perspective for us. The best is yet to come. We will have difficulty here and now. We will suffer here and now. And at times we might even wonder how a good and loving God could possibly allow such intense suffering to take place. And there are no easy answers for that. I think Jesus probably knew before anyone else that the wine would run out. In fact, I bet lots of people could see the problem coming because anyone who's ever hosted an event that did run out of food or drink, you know that you can see that problem coming a mile away, right? You know, actually, like as soon as it starts and you start eyeballing the people in the room and then you eyeball your table with the food and drink and you think, this is a problem, right? But Jesus doesn't fix the problem in advance. He waited until all the wine was gone. And then he counted on the faithfulness of people, his mother and the servants, to carry out his instructions and to make the miracle happen. We're called to be faithful in the midst of this broken world. Even if we can't possibly see how being faithful will help anything, even if we're wondering how the cup of water in our hands could possibly satisfy the need for wine, we're called to be faithful, to do as he says. And it's in that moment, that faithful response to what Jesus tells us to do, even when it seems pointless or useless or downright crazy, that we start to witness his glory. That's when the miracles happen. That's when we catch a glimpse of what's coming. The wedding at Cana was a sign. It pointed to a greater truth. Jesus is saving the best for last. But signs like that have a funny way of bringing the future that they are pointing to into the present. The joy at that wedding, as 120 gallons of the best wine being served, is a foretaste of the joy that will come when Jesus returns and makes all things new. When we respond in faith to Jesus, when we see these kinds of signs in our own lives, we experience the same thing. We get a glimpse of what's coming. A bit of joy in the midst of hardship. Light in the darkness. And that light helps us turn around and look at our lives differently. We see our problems differently. We see our conflicts differently. Everything changes in the light of Jesus. At times, all of our lives will be difficult, painful, dark. But thanks be to God, he's saving the best for last. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen.